Well, hey everyone, it is Joel. Um, I am coming to you with a unplanned podcast here. Um, and I'll, let me just explain why. Um, so yesterday uh, in the sermon, we were trying a little experiment, which was to make the, the sermon itself be a little bit more question-driven versus uh, kind of a normal one where I'm trying to anticipate questions people might have or things that might really speak to the people in the church well, uh, we thought, why don't we just expand our normal question response that we do sometimes and kind of let that be the bulk of the sermon. And it was an experiment that I think is something we want to keep trying, keep doing in the future. And it did not go the way we wanted at all. Um, so typically when you go to the website and you submit a question, um, during a, during a sermon, it will go to Julie's email and it loads right away. And, and so, you know, in a normal Q and R, what, what we're doing is if I'm like, if I'm preaching, Julie is kind of just checking her email throughout the sermon and is kind of, and they, they come in and she's kind of taking them and, and she'll, she'll just pick, pick a few and, 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 and ask them me at the end and vice versa when, when she's preaching. And, um, so anyway, yesterday during the sermon, she's waiting and no, no questions are coming in. And so she was kind of like, well, this is kind of weird, but so she actually, she actually, the two questions she asked me were, were ones that, uh, she came up with kind of guessing at the types of things that people might have asked if she had gotten some questions. Well, of course, um, when we got home from church on yesterday, uh, all of a sudden, all the emails came in at once with all these questions. And so we felt really like upset and frustrated for you because we didn't get to, to do what we were hoping to do. And so um, we're sorry about that. We're not sure why that happened. Um, maybe try to look into it. It's never happened before and all, and we've done this Q and R a lot of times now. So it's, it's, it's a little frustrating on the, the Sunday we were trying to really lean on the question and response that, uh, we didn't get them to come in. So I don't know. We will keep an eye on that going forward, I suppose. Um, and we will do this again where we try to have a sermon, maybe in the series. I am, I'm not totally sure yet, but um, we will do another. We will do this again in the future. I think this will be something we might do a little bit more regularly where we let the sermon be a little bit more question-driven in the moment. Um But in the meantime, you submitted these questions. You were expecting to get a response, and so I'm going to give you one in this um, podcast. So I hope that you, uh, if you submitted one, or even if you didn't, that uh, this is a chance for you to really um, get some, you know, thoughts on the different things that you're wondering about that kind of came up with this parable. Um, The parable that we walked through yesterday, if you didn't, if you weren't at church on Sunday, or or you didn't listen to, didn't hear it, it, it's the parable of the wheat and the weeds, or sometimes it's called the wheat and the tares. Um, it comes from Matthew 13. It's a, it's a very, you know, I don't know if it's a famous parable, um, but it is a really meaty one. And so I will, I'm not going to go through it here in this podcast. I assume um, if you didn't listen to the sermon, you can go back and listen to it to get, a, uh, you know, to have it read. And, and I unpack uh, it to help you understand what's going on uh, there before we got into that, that Q&R part of uh, the sermon. But I'm just going to walk through your questions here as you sent them in. Um, every single one, I want to honor 
you're sending in those questions. We got a lot of really good ones. And um, and actually one of the, the bonuses, I suppose, is is I got a little time to look at these and think about them, which I wouldn't have had. I do actually really enjoy that spontaneous environment of Q&R on Sunday mornings because uh, I'm a weirdo. I know a lot of people really feel uncomfortable with that and actually <laughs> think that it makes sense to feel uncomfortable with it. I actually really enjoy that for some reason because I'm a weirdo. Um, but it was nice to get a little time to think through these because these are some, you know, intense questions. Um, and it's, and it's a, it's a deep kind of, uh, very meaty parable with some real hard things to maybe think about sometimes. So I actually appreciate getting a little time to think through some of these and hopefully my response will be, you know, will will match the, the depth and the, and the good questions that you, you all send in. So without further ado, let's, uh, let's get into it. All right, the first question here, why do prayers of supplication, or so why do prayers of supplication at all if the answer is just going to be delayed? So what's the point, basically, is what the question is asking. Um, and uh, so let's, 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 let's limit prayer of supplication here to specifically prayers involving deliverance from evil, because that's kind of what the, what the parable is about, is, is evil and kind of resistance to God's kingdom growing in the world, um, pain and suffering. Let's limit the prayer to those, uh, limit prayer of supplication to those specifically, okay? Because in the parable, the answer to these prayers, I suppose, would be the final judgment. That would be the ultimate answer of God. That's the moment where he's going to make all things right, not just respond to individual prayers, but sort of reshape creation and the order that we live in. All right, so... Um, for example, let's just say you had a greedy, evil, unjust landlord, okay? Let's just imagine that you do, and you pray to God that he would deliver you from a situation where this landlord is screwing you over. Um, when you pray for that, I think you're not expecting God to uh, answer that by getting rid of your evil landlord or doing away with all evil landlords, you're praying that he would deliver you from some situation where the landlord is screwing you over. But you're not asking him to, uh, you know, do the final judgment against this landlord or all evil landlords, if that makes sense. Um, so just because God doesn't, you know, do the final judgment now doesn't mean he's not working in the present. Nothing of, about the parable assumes that God is not doing stuff in, in the present as well. It's just as saying he's holding off on the final harvest, the final judgment in, in his return for the end. So I actually think there's no sort of tension to me in doing prayers of supplication um, unless your prayer is like, Jesus, return now and do all justice. Like, and he might. He might answer that prayer, I suppose. Um, but asking him to deliver us from situations where we find ourselves uh, needing a deliverance or a response from God in the midst of evil, um, the, the parable is not saying that God delays in that. And there's lots of ways, I think, that God deals with sin in this sort of in-between time that we're living in. Um, there's something, when it, let's just, you know, if we go to the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, um, uh, you know, Proverbs sets out this expectation that if you, some scholars call this the retribution principle, that if you live wisely, you should tend to expect blessing to come from that. And if you live foolishly, you should expect to get that back. You know, that's what Proverbs is saying. And so God deals with sin, which is expressed in foolishness in Proverbs, by kind of giving you 
what you put in, like letting natural consequences take their course. Now, just a caveat with that, Proverbs paints the picture that way, and I think, you know, we need to read Proverbs, um, but also read it alongside Ecclesiastes and Job, which are going to show us that the world, while that principle is mostly true, it's not always that simple. And in fact, uh, the world is a lot more complex than that, which is kind of what the parable gets at too. Another way that God in the moment, I think, um, deals with evil is through his, he does do, you know, judgment or what we could call wrath in the moment. Read, read Romans 1, 18 and following for the rest of the chapter, where, where Paul says that in giving people over to the consequences of their sin and rebellion, um, they experience some judgment where basically God doesn't stop them from going down the path that they're on. And they reap some consequence to that and justice, whatever that looks like, whatever the consequence might look like, is done. Even if it's not a, you know, in the way we might expect or think, there is a consequence for their evil. And then ultimately, I think in the story of the Bible, death is um, God's ultimate, uh, you know, response to evil in the present. Or at least the natural consequence that we reap for our rebellion is death. And so it's not that God is completely inactive in the moment. It's just that he's going to do something at the very end. And that's the thing we, we long for in the parable points to where everything will be made right, uh, we think. So anyway, I think you should absolutely do prayers of supplication in the present um, and believe that God answers prayer. All right, next question. Who do you think the enemy is in the parable? Well, I think it's Satan because Jesus says that in, 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 cha- in verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 39. Um, he says, the enemy who planted the weeds among the wheat is the devil. So he says that very clearly and he kind of identifies, um, you know, in the parable itself, he identifies kind of who everybody is or what, what a, at least a lot of the stuff is. Not maybe every, you know, detail of the parable, but a lot of it he does give an explanation for uh, a little bit later on. Um, and actually, it's one of only three parables that he does that. So it's very helpful for us, which is, this would have been a parable that I don't think we could have understood without his explanation, to be to be honest. So, all right, next question. Even though God will be faithful to his promises, doesn't he care about those living and suffering in the world here and now? He's all-powerful. He can make it right whenever he wants. Why wait? We aren't plants, like, we're, you know, there's not like a, I think the, the question asker is saying, like, it's not like he has to wait a certain amount of time because plants take a certain amount of time to grow. He can do the harvest at any time, and I, I think you're right about that. Uh, okay, so I have, a, I have a couple thoughts on this one. It's a really, it is a good question, and I think it's a, it's a pretty honest and common one that people might ask. Um, the short response, I guess I'll say, first off, is, is I don't know. Um, and I'm not going to try to tell you, you know, I speak on behalf of God <laughs> um, and that, you know, this is why he is or isn't doing what he wants. Um, there is a, immense amounts of suffering in the world. Um, and I think we can all recognize that. And I think it's a fair question to ask why, you know, there's not something being done in the present or why God is, is delaying. I personally think I can live with it because it doesn't seem to be something God wants to reveal to us. And faith informs me that it's okay to live with loose threads like this. Um, I do think sometimes we have anxiety over this and we try to manage our anxiety. One of the ways you find is, um, you know, Christians trying to predict the dates of God's return as a measure of control. There's actually a very famous example of this back in 2011, a guy named Harold Camping, um, and he was wrong. And, uh, 
just got a lot of egg on his face. Um, but I think, you know, God is God and we're not. And I think this is a time where we have to remind ourselves of that. Adam and Eve's original sin was to try to be like God in ways they weren't supposed to be. As disciples and image bearers, we are supposed to be like God in a lot of ways, but there are some ways where we're not. And I think um, often sin is us trying to, and I'm not saying it's a sin to ask this question at all, but, but I am saying like sometimes uh, we, we need to know what it looks like for us to let God be God and for us to not be that. Okay. But let me say a couple, a couple more things here. Okay. And then two, two different, two different specific responses. I take this in two different directions. So the first is philosophical. I'm going to draw on some work of some people that are smarter than me. Um, this is kind of a play on this question. It's kind of like uh, using the problem of evil as a bit of its backdrop. Um, basically the problem of evil, if you've not heard it before, aren't familiar with it, it's a philosophical kind of, um, uh, challenge the existence of God. And, uh, and, and it basically asks, it says, if God is all powerful, that he could stop evil. And if he was good, he would stop evil. Um, and if you were an atheist and agnostic, you'd say, since evil exists based on those last two premises, it would mean that God doesn't exist, or at least the God who's all powerful and all good doesn't exist. The kind of traditional conception of him uh, that Christians have. Um, it expects God to do something, and it puts the question on him of why would he wait. It says, there is no good reason that I can see, and that becomes sort of the major premise that everything rests on. I don't understand why God wouldn't move. I can't see a good reason, and so I'm kind of using that as the major hinge point. Um, but just because we can't see a reason for God to delay doesn't mean he doesn't have one. And I think it's really important for us to think about this, okay? Uh, let me quote something from a book called Reason for God by Tim Keller. He says, Tucked away within the, the assertion that the world is filled with pointless evil is a hidden premise, namely that if evil appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless. And then, uh, I'm not quoting anymore, but we make that a fact at that point. Okay, back into... Uh, the quote, just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. We see lurking within supposedly hard-nosed skepticism an enormous faith in one's own cognitive faculties. If our minds can't plumb the depths of the universe for good answers to suffering, well then, there can't be any. And this is blind faith of a high order. Okay, so we have to be we have to be willing to check our own assertions and um, ability to think about whether there might be a reason or not is basically what he's saying. Just because you can't see a reason doesn't mean there is one. And there's actually a, a philosopher named Alvin Plantinga. He's a very well-known uh, philosopher at Notre Dame uh, for a long time. I can't remember if he's still there or not, or even if he's actually still alive. But he's a contemporary guy, is, is my point. He provides an illustration to kind of address the flaw in reasoning here. Um, he says, if you look in your in your tent, let's say you're camping, uh, you're looking for a St. Bernard dog, right? And you don't see one when you open the tent up. It's reasonable to assume that there's no St. Bernard in your tent. St. Bernards are big dogs. Okay, but if you look in your tent for a noceum, which is an extremely small insect that apparently uh, is roams, I believe it's Michigan where Alvin Planning is from, it's, it's a common thing in Michigan that people who camp are used to dealing with. It's incredibly small, but it has a bite that's out of all proportion to its size. If you look, if you just quick open the door to your tent and look in there and you don't see any, it's not reasonable to assume that there are not any there because after all, no one can see them. That's the point. 
Um, many assume that if there were good reasons for the existence of evil, they would be accessible to our minds, and we treat that more like a St. Bernard than a Noceum, but why should that be the case, is what he asks. So basically, if you know, we think we know for certain that so much of the suffering we go through is pointless and we we are ten, you know, we're tempted to distrust God because of it. But I think we need to apply that same level of skepticism to ourselves too. To, that is humble enough to say, you know, I can't understand why God might allow this in the in the present, why He might not act in some way. But just because I can't see a reason for it doesn't mean He might not have a good, legitimate one. And again, this leads us back to faith and trust and patience in Him. And, it, and that leads actually to my second thing I want to talk about. The first one was a little philosophical. This is a little bit more, I think, pastoral. Because um, the question asks, if God cares, right? If God cares, the assumption would be that he would do this harvest now. But let's talk about what God cares about. Okay? I think we struggle with this in American Christianity, perhaps. But, and I, I think God deeply cares about our flourishing, which you know we typically mean our well-being, our health, our comfort, what we would call our circumstances, okay? I do think God cares about those things. I don't think that he thinks that they're unimportant or, or you know, he is just absolutely just doesn't give a rip at all when we pray about our circumstances, okay? But we often forget that he also cares deeply, perhaps as much or, or maybe more. I, I think you could definitely make the argument about, I, I would say, actually, I think you should make that argument, I suppose, about he cares deeply about who we're becoming, no matter our circumstances. Okay, and I think that's an important distinction to keep in mind. Think about the kingdom. Jesus didn't come to make people who had it all, who had no trouble living with perfect circumstances. That's not why Jesus came. He came to make disciples. That's what God desires. And a disciple is not someone who. Uh, always has perfect circumstances, who never deals with any trouble. Um, a disciple is someone who looks like Jesus, who is becoming a certain kind of person. And I think God is working to make us a certain kind of person, a disciple, more than he's making us a person who has great circumstances, who's happy, who's comfortable, who has lots of money, who has no trauma, whatever it is. And we can be a disciple in all kinds of circumstances. We can be a disciple in seasons of joy. We can also be a disciple in seasons of pain and suffering. And as we go through a life of discipleship, we're going to experience all of these things. And the truth is, in times of suffering, we actually often grow quite a bit. Now, does that mean God sends trouble our way for that purpose? I know some Christian theologians who would say that, some who wouldn't. Um, I guess just to put a bow on it and, and wrap up this question, I would say it's probably more complex than either side says, okay? But again, I think let's just kind of, let's ask ourselves the question, you know, what does God, what does God care about? And I think if we can live there, that's going to help us sometimes when we find ourselves in the midst of suffering or just dealing with the, the problem of suffering in the world. Again, this is not an answer to everything. And the part, the point of the parable is that this is supposed to be, Every, all, everything about this is a lot more complex than I think we tend to make it when we frame it in the ways that we do. And I think um, it's just okay to sometimes just end there and be okay with that. Uh, I know that's hard, though. I'm not going to dismiss how hard that is uh, to live with either. All right, next question. 
I understand that God gave everybody a free will. Do you think if you have a stronger calling from God that the devil is going to try to get you to fail that much more? And if so, how can you avoid this? Now, I'm not 100% sure where the question comes from. My guess is actually, it probably comes from the Job story, which I talked about um, yesterday a little bit, where Job's righteousness seems to kind of put a target on his back, gets the attention of Satan, and Satan goes after Job kind of because of it. Um, I don't think Job's story is normative, I guess, is what I'll just, I'll probably just leave it here. I wouldn't take too much from it, I guess. Um, I would say, um, you know, it's above my pay grade to speculate on the schemes of the devil, but I suspect he just likes to see it all burn. And whoever he can find to make that happen, he's happy with. I'm sure he's he loves to see someone who is well-known, who is kind of seen as a, as a very you know, wise, righteous, Christ-like person fall into some temptation. I'm sure that is a, something he enjoys quite a bit, but I'm sure, I think he, I think he probably enjoys it all, I guess is, is what I would say. And we'll just leave it there. How do we know how much to try and address to, and get rid of the present evils of the world now? We know God will deal with it eventually, but we also celebrate justice now. So how can I be patient and also fight for justice in the present? I think this is a great question. Um, because I think you can, you can embrace this sort of fatalism that just says, oh, it doesn't matter. Um, God's going to take care of it. I don't, I don't, I shouldn't have to care about it at all. And I think that is, that's wrong. I, I don't think that there's really, uh, you know, any reason to come to that conclusion based off of the information that's given to us in this parable, um, or the rest of scripture. But I know a lot of Christians kind of end up with that sort of who cares mentality. Um, I would say in terms of finding that balance of being patient, but also, you know, resisting evil in the present. Um, it's a question not of action. Like, you know, it's just assumed, I think we should resist evil, but it's an expectation of our effect when we resist evil. Okay. So the parable is only going to, I think, be an issue for someone who believes that justice in the world ultimately is contingent on them and other like-minded people who just want to eradicate evil and not really on God. Okay. I don't think any of us would probably say we we think that, you know, this is the truth. But I do think deep down we want our actions to be more decisive than they usually are. But in, the reality is, I mean, most of the best human efforts to do justice, like, they make a dent in evil in the world. I do think so. But it's also, I mean, we have to be willing to admit, like, the I mean, the best human efforts to do justice are often really limited. Like, the one of the most celebrated resistors of evil um in, in human history is, I would say, Martin Luther King Jr. And we are wrestling today with how much is still wrong in the world in that regard, despite the great efforts, the great, you know, Christ-like challenged resistance of evil that Martin Luther King Jr. and all the people that worked with him in the civil rights movement, um, you know, did. Like, it made a difference, but I don't think we should have ever thought that he was going to eliminate injustice or, or, or racism, okay? So if you don't have that expectation, then I think you should have no problem with the supposed tension. And I think the answer to how to be patient then, to really kind of circle back and answer the question, is this. I think you should see doing good and fighting for justice not as a, a means to an end that only God can provide, but as a kind of liturgy or an act of worship. And I, and, and I would say actually a, a mode of discipleship where we are imaging the God who does resist evil and will one day make all things right.
uh, if that makes sense. I, I think if, if we take the, the expectation of what we're doing and we put it into worship, liturgy, um, discipleship, I think that I think that will help us be patient and 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 get rid of any, well, at least a lot of anxiety that we might feel with that. <clears throat> All right, sorry, I moved my voice a little bit here. Next question: Who is the Son of Man? Um, without getting too much in the background of this phrase, um, it's Jesus. This is actually a pretty common self-designation that Jesus gave himself, um, where he would kind of speak in third person. And there's reasons for it, and I, I don't really need to get into it here. Um, but yeah, it, Jesus is referring to himself there. Um, if you read through your your Gospels, especially, I, I don't think John probably has this very much, if at all, but the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he he's pretty often calls himself the Son of Man in there. All right, what resources do you use to understand the historical context of these types of passages? Um, and they give the example of the types of weed used in ancient agriculture. Okay, so yesterday in the sermon, um, I, I read the parable, but then I also kind of gave some historical context that um, you wouldn't have just as a you know regular regular old American reading this in the uh, you know 2023. You probably wouldn't know that Jesus is referring to a specific type of weed. Uh, that looks a lot like wheat, and it's very hard to tell the difference. Um, so, typically, more modern scholarly works will, I think, invite you into that history. Um, if you're reading something written by a modern scholar, biblical, biblical scholar, New Testament scholar, Old Testament scholar, they're pretty good about uh, informing us of that sort of um, historical context, background, cultural information. Um, I think they're better at it than older ones in church history. That's why I say modern. Um, I think it's absolutely worth it to read older church kind of uh, commentary and reflection on scriptural um, passages. There's great, incredible theological insight in those, but it's a little more hit or miss on the historical context. I do think we do that pretty well. Um, in our, not to say, and that's not to say that there's there's no historical understanding whatsoever in the ancient times. Actually, honestly, if you go really far back into, you know, stuff that's written much closer um, to uh, the time of Jesus, like these are people who live in actually pretty similar cultures to the one Jesus lived in. So um, actually there can be a lot to be gleaned from that, but kind of once you move up from that period, more modern stuff is pretty good because we really take it seriously in the modern world to do good hist historical work. Um, and the best place to find that is typically in, in commentaries. Um, so, you know, there's lots of commentaries out there. Um, for example, the Matthew commentary, you know, this is in Matthew, so we use a Matthew commentary typically. Um, we really like to use the New International Commentary on the New Testament. We've used that commentary series for a lot of the, um, a lot of the sermon series that we've done. Um, but actually the one we're leaning on the most for this series is a book. It's another scholarly work called Stories with Intent um, by a guy named Klein Snodgrass. I quoted him in last week's sermon. And it's a scholarly kind of case-by-case -case treatment of the parables. Um, and actually from there, I actually kind of once I, you know, read and, and actually was in Stories with Intent by, by Snodgrass, I learned that, oh, he's referring to this type of weed called Lolium temelentum or darnel. I actually went on to Wikipedia to learn a little bit more about it myself. So, um there you go. That was my process, um, in, in that one in particular, and it's I would say that's pretty representative of how how a lot of my understanding of this kind of stuff that I use 
for sermons and teaching comes from. Um, big commentaries are really good, um, but they can be really technical. Um, they can be hard to understand. A lot of times you're going to get into, you know, word studies or structure of, you know, uh, grammar and, and all kinds of stuff. And it can be sometimes a little hard to follow. Your eyes will definitely glaze over sometimes. Um, there's actually really good shorter ones that can be helpful. And maybe this is where I would actually steer you all, at least initially. Um, there's shorter commentaries or actually just books that are not commentaries or written for a scholarly audience, but they're written by scholars. They do a good job of drawing that good historical context into their work and in, in how they kind of write in a more pastoral sense. Um, even if So even if it's popular level, if it's written by a scholar, actually... They will show their work on this kind of stuff, and I, I would I would say a lot of times that's really good. Um, a series, just I'll throw this out there to wrap up this question, and before we move on to our last one, is there's a new and Old Testament. Uh, it's called the New New Testament for Everyone or the Old Testament for Everyone. It's a series written by a couple of scholars, uh, a guy named John Goldinge for the Old Testament, and N.T. Wright for the New Testament. N.T. Wright is one of my one of my favorite Christian scholars out there. One of my just my favorite Christian writers in general. I, I've read, I love him. And he does a great job of this, of drawing in this context with, you know, making it very pastoral and, and applicable. Um, so that's a series I would I would recommend to you. It's a commentary series, um, but it's also it's pretty easy to follow and understand. So, all right, last question here: Can you talk about Second Peter three nine in this context? The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, and said he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Um, okay, so um, I'm, I'm not sure if there's like a very specific uh, question here, or just kind of generally you want to comment on that passage in Second Peter, and kind of, you know, how it might meld with, um, with, with the, the parable. Um, let me actually read it again. The question included... It in there, thankfully. That was very helpful, actually, if I had been doing this live, because I would not have, definitely not have Second Peter 3 9 memorized, so it was helpful that you had it in there for me. But let me actually read uh, Second Peter verses, Second uh, Peter 3 verses 8 to 10, so the sandwich in the context a little bit. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So Peter actually quotes in verse 8, um, when he says, With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. He's actually quoting Psalm 94, which I actually quoted in the sermon too, to kind of talk about this. And then in verse 10, he talks about this thing called the day of the Lord. Um, now, that's a Jewish... Um, an Old Testament phrase, the day of the Lord, and that gets brought into and used in the New Testament. And it's a way of referring to a day when God will act. And actually, there's probably multiple days of the Lord, but here Peter is actually referring to the, the final one, which the parable also refers to too, and the harvest. I think the harvest is about a day of the Lord. I think Peter is saying that God is not slow. He doesn't drag his feet, but he also has a different pace that he moves at than us. And so according to his own pace, he might not be delaying, but to us who operate with a much quicker pace, it might seem like it. Peter's saying, God doesn't drag his feet, but you have to understand he, he, he works at a different pace. Um, but, okay, also on top of that, balancing God's timeliness with his patience, um, it also can be an intentional delay there. Um, I don't think the parable is supposed to be taken further than Jesus 
says, right? In the parable, um, you know, the wheat and the weeds, they're fixed. But in reality, that's not the case. Um, and God is patient um, to wait for weeds to become wheat. And depending on your theological tradition, maybe wheat turning back into weeds again, right? God's de- God does delay to give time for repentance. Um, in the Old Testament, the story of Israel is one of God doing this, where God delays for many generations, continually, you know, turning back his judgment in, in the hope that Israel will repent and turn from their rejection of the covenant. And at a certain point, God does he quits delaying. He, 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 he is no longer patient and he allows the consequences of that to come crashing in on them. And that actually is referred to as a day of the Lord um, at times in the Old Testament and in, in the exile, in the exile into Babylon. So I think that's actually a good example um, of that. So anyway, that is how I kind of read 2 Peter 3, 9, kind of in conversation with the parable. I actually think they, they fit together pretty well, I would say. Um, all right, well, that's it for all the questions. Like I said, I am so sorry that um, we had to do it this way. I really would have uh, preferred to um, do it in the sermon. Um, this is kind of our plan B. Um, and in the future, I would really like to try try and do that again. And, and, and you know, Lord willing, we won't have any technical difficulties. But um, I appreciate you listening to this Um to try to work through some questions and, and use it as a uh, appendix <laughs> to the sermon yesterday, I suppose. Um, but yeah, anyway, have a great week, everybody. I uh, appreciate you all so much. Love you all. And we will talk soon.